Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning and uh, welcome to the Olathe campus. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's good to be together as we continue um, unpacking this idea of hope uh, from the book of Ephesians. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in. God, I pray that we, um, again this morning, would be captivated by your hope. God, for those of us maybe who have uh, never experienced real hope or um, who are here this morning feeling particularly hopeless, God, I, I pray that we would get a glimpse, that we would understand that you are a God who is still in control and God who loves us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And God, centered upon that hope, Would you change us? Help us to be the people, the church, the community that you've called us to be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hope. Been talking a lot about hope, right? I I hope uh, I never get cancer. I hope my life gets easier. I hope I win a million dollars. I hope, uh, and I hope all the time. But that's, that's not the kind of hope that we've been talking about. Like the, the hope that's, that's here looks, looks radically different than just sort of these, you know, wishes that we tend to wrap our lives around. A couple, a couple months ago, uh, my son David and I, we sat down together uh, and we watched the two-hour highlights video of last year's World Series. Um, and it was kind of awesome. 
okay? To like relive it, to be back in the moment, the, the drama of the, of, the, of the whole experience. I mean, just to sit there and do that again, I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible. And, and um, I, think, I think the best parts watching it this time around were, were the moments in which it looked bleakest. Like, like, like when, there was, when there was no chance like whatsoever, right? I mean, just for example, like of the 53-inning five-game series, we were tied for 16 innings, losing for 24, and only winning in 13, right? On paper, we had no business winning. Like hope in that context was just, it was an aimless wish, right? Watching it the second time around? I mean, do you remember like the first, I mean, how many of you paced like back and forth, right? Or compulsively ate or, you know, bit your nails or, I mean, it was constant, like all this anxiety in the moment, but like second time through, it was kind of fun watching the Mets celebrate little victories, right? I mean, you know, high fives and, you know, chest bumps and like, aren't they cute, right? Like they don't even know that they're losers. I mean, it's just like, it's like this entirely different experience going through it. And so David and I, as we watched it, like we weren't, we weren't anxious or nervous or afraid, right? The, we, you know, we were cheering and, and laughing and, and high-fiving and hugging. I cried at least once. I mean, you try not crying, okay? I mean, it, was a, it was an entirely different experience. Every, like all the stuff in the first time through that had me in knots, wanting to yell at my TV and throw the remote, gave way to greater joy the second time through. Why? Because we knew how it was going to end. Like, there's, there's no doubt or, or fear. We knew what the outcome was going to be. And that, that's what God means by hope. That when, when, when hope is talked about in Scripture, that's the kind of perspective that it is. It's, it's, that's the sort of hope that's here. It's not some sugar-coated wish, right? Boy, I sure hope it doesn't rain later today. No. This kind of hope, real hope, biblical hope, is confidence in something beyond us. In, in a God who, who is still in control, no matter what. It rests not in luck or blind courage or my own ability to make things better. Real hope knows how the game ends and trusts because God is good. And he said he's going to take care of us. And that kind of hope, real hope, changes everything. Now, now we've been in Ephesians, and we've seen, as Patrick mentioned, we, you know, the first week we talked about hope for me and my, my, deepest, my deepest fears and failures. There's hope for me. And then last week was hope for, for us together in our ugliest relationships, our deepest divisions, that there's hope even there. And now this morning what we're going to see is that there, there is hope for all. That our hope doesn't exist simply for us. That we, the church, exist to bring hope to a hopeless world. I mean, as we've been asking this question, why church? This answer, it better humble us to the depths, but why? It's because there's hope here. But that hope cannot just be for me and for mine, but for everyone. The local church is the only institution on the planet that exists for the good of those who aren't even here. That's who we're called to be. Not for those who are here, but for those who, who aren't, who still need hope. And hope changes everything. 
It's the only way any of this makes sense, any of what we're talking about with, with Reach KC, or even why we gather on Sundays. It's got to be something more. It's about hope, and it changes everything. But that, that is only true if you've actually been changed by hope. Like, if, if you want to have hope, if you want to be hope, if we as a church want to be the hope of the world, as we so often talk about, then we've got to be changed by that hope. And so as we look at this, this passage this morning, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and at the very beginning of chapter 5, we're going to see three things. That hope makes us new, hope makes us strange, and hope makes us love. Makes us new, makes us strange, and makes us love. The first hope makes us, makes us new. Really, this, this first part of the text here in chapter 4, in chapter 4 beginning with verse, verse 17 is kind of that whole uh, end of verse, verse 20. It's really the same thing that we talked about two weeks ago. So we won't, we won't spend as much time on those, those early verses. But if you remember two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, it was that we were dead, right? Not, not that we were like not great people, you know, or, or slightly sick. Uh, we were dead. And the only reason we're alive is because of Jesus, that he has given us this, this new life in him. And really, Paul is saying the same thing again here. This time he uses a little bit different metaphor, that we were old, stuck in an old way of living, but now we are being made new. We're in chapter 4. Let me read at, at verse 20, because Paul, he describes this old way of life. And then he writes, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Church, right? Followers of Jesus. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be instead renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That we're to be made new. We all love new stuff, right? I don't care who you are. It's like it's in us. We new new things, new experiences, new opportunities. I mean, we we love we love new. And I think I think whether whether you're a Christian or not, I think there's a part of us that longs to be new. Like to be the 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 very best version of ourselves. We know there's a problem and we long we long for it to be healed. Maybe just think about that for a second. Like what if I could be Nathan 2.0? Like all the, all the bugs and the glitches finally worked out. Everything that d- diminishes me, right? All of my regrets, my pains, uh, the mistakes that I have, the insecurities, as well as the areas of arrogance. Like what, what if those were, 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 were worked out in the new, new process? Like, I mean, there's a reason everybody buys a new iPhone, right? That's why we keep going back. We, we want to be the very best and the newest model of, our, of ourselves. I want that for me. And Paul says here that there is, a, there is a new way to be human. A new way. And this, I mean, don't miss this. We're kind of going through this point quickly because we spent so much time on it two weeks ago. But don't, don't miss this. I mean, Paul, he's not writing to a bunch, bunch of immoral people telling them that they ought to live better. He's not saying to a, a group of irreligious people, you better find religion, right? The, the hope of the world isn't good people. It's new people. In, in Christ, that the, that the world we live in, as broken as it is, doesn't just need nicer humans. It needs a new kind of human. 
the 2.0 version of what we, of what you and I have broken so much of. And Paul says it's possible. So before we go any further, if you want hope, if you want to be hope for others, ask yourself, am I becoming new? Like, is that process happening in me? And this, this begins, I mean, clearly with Paul, it begins by giving your life to Jesus. That is the starting point for this, this new life. And then if you've done that, then you, you have to ask regularly, am I putting on the new self? Or am I still living in my old crusty ways? Am I living as if God is actually in control? Do I trust him for how the game is going to end? Because the church ought to be a place where the old become brand new. For the old way of living is nothing but a distant memory. And what if, what if that was us? You know, hypothetically speaking, us in this room. What, what if we were that new kind of human? Like instead of the old way of sin and selfishness and pride and, and unforgiveness, what if instead we put on honesty and humility and compassion and grace patience. What would that look like here? It'd be strange, wouldn't it? There'd be nothing like it. That's, that's really the next thing we see. Hope, this kind of hope makes us strange. There's really no way around it. People of hope, new people, are strange. Because you see what, what's normal I think it's always been normal. We feel it, I think, even more so today. What's normal today is despair, right? Hope feels out of place. Hope, hope doesn't belong. We, we feel everything spiraling out of control. Hope, hope itself is strange. And Paul describes how it, how it works itself out in us, the way that hope makes us strange. Um, and he kind of gives this whole long list of, of the way it looks like to be captured by hope, to be this new kind of, of people. And I think kind of a way to summarize it for us is that, I mean, I think the two things that Paul keeps hitting on here is that new people, strange people, use words that build and work that serves. And if you think about it, like, if you just, like, let those sink in, like, that's, that's strange, right? Words that build? This day and age? Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace, that our words would actually give grace to those who hear. Earlier he said as well that we were to put away all falsehood, right? That we speak only the truth. He says, let all bitterness, in, in verse 31, but all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That just seems strange, right? But new people only use words that build. Tell that to your last Facebook post. Like, how is it that we think it's okay to type words that we would never actually say to another human's face? Why is that? Or, or, or replay that last lousy interact, interaction with a coworker or someone at school. The things that were said. Replay the last argument you had at home with your spouse or with your parents. 
What if instead you and I right now, we said, you know what? I'm going to use words that build. Because I, I can tell you personally, words, if, if there's anything that has caused me to apologize in the relationships in which I, I have, hands down, it's words. I mean, I use a lot of them. I don't know if you know that about me. Often they come out without thinking. You've heard some of those. Um, I end up having to apologize to people I care about. I hurt them. Like, it just, it just comes out, right? That's, I, I feel that, and almost like you see the words. You, you know it as they're going. You want to just grab onto them and pull them back. And it's so easy in a culture like ours now to just say, well, that's just how we talk. Right? That's, that's what we do. It's how we interact with one, one another. It's, it's normal and acceptable to be terrible to one another with the way that we speak. I mean, just a while back, last year, um, I received the cruelest email I've ever gotten from a congregation member. Um, I mean, you wouldn't believe it if you read it. I wouldn't even let Kelly see it. Um, they're, not, they're not here anymore, um, as you can probably imagine. Um, and one of, my, one of my first thoughts when I read this, this long email, um, because of both the tone and the topic, my first thought was, man, this guy watches way too many political, political talk shows. And he actually thinks he's hosting one of them, Right? And I'm not, I'm not saying you can't watch or listen to political talk shows, right? Fine, whatever. But if you think for a moment it's okay to talk like any of them, with a demeaning language that may they demonize the people they disagree with, I mean, don't forget, like, liberal or conservative, they're all just trying to sell toothpaste, okay? Right? They, they have to be sensational to have viewers so that they can sell ads. It's Cheerios and deodorant, okay? That's all it is. We don't talk like that to one another, we can't. And, and instead, what, what if we went into the opposite extreme, right? From that, that angle to actually, to actually using words that instead of destroy, I mean, that's what's normal, words that destroy. Instead to use words that build. Imagine, imagine what that would do just even for us in this room. Not to mention the community around us. If we were people who chose, even when we're angry, even when we're abused or misused, even when we're right, if we chose to use words that build, it'd be strange. I think we're ready for something different, aren't we? And the other, the other thing here, it's a little bit more subtle, this other category of strangeness for Paul. Um, I don't want us to miss it. It's work that serves like this entirely new perspective about the way we spend the majority of our time, whether you get paid for it or not, whether you're at home, at school, at work, that our, our work or our vocation, that there's something different about how we understand it. Not about us, but about others. I mean, look what Paul says in verse 28. I mean, it's such an interesting uh, transformation that he describes. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. But he doesn't stop there so that he may have something to share with those in need. That, that we are to move from, from stealing to, to, to working, actually, but even further, like from economic injustice to, to a place of personal flourishing, which is where we stop culturally, right? But Paul pushes it further. It's actually so that you can share with those in need. That to go from economic flourishing to economic generosity is what, what, he's, what he's saying there. It's an incredible picture that work Work is not about just self-fulfillment or self-advancement, no matter what it is you do. It's not, 
It's not that, not according to Paul. That instead, it's ultimately about the good of others. That in, in your work, you love your neighbor. In your work, you care for your coworkers. In your work, you share with those in need. And well, I mean, what would that look like at school? Or in your office? What, what about for our, our community? Or, or, I mean, think about like, all the politics, the backbiting, the competition in many of our offices, right? Or, or even just the extreme of just living for the weekend. Or the stinginess and self-centeredness that we so often have with our work and our material possessions. What if, what if instead we saw our work as an opportunity to serve the people around us? It'd be strange. But let, me, let me ask, what if our goal as this community of people centered around the gospel, what if our goal was to be strange in all the right ways? With our work, our words, and, and everything. Not, not strange in the weird, off-putting kind of ways that many Christians can be, right? You know who you are. Stop it. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's strange in the best ways, right? I mean, the world has plenty of normal people. Normal is killing us. What if, what if, we, what if we, his people, his church, what if we just tried something different? Recently, I listened to one of the best uh, parenting talks I'd ever heard. I posted it on the church Facebook page. If you want to uh, find it, uh, you can see it there. It's, it's from uh, Jen Wilkin. It's called Raising an Alien Child. Raising an Alien Child. Um, and the whole, the whole point of her talk, and it's all so, so good, but the whole point um, is that our, our goal as parents, for those of you who are parents, um, that, that if, if you're a new person, if you've been captivated by hope in Christ, then our goal as parents is to raise kids who don't fit in. That goal, like that's, like who think differently, who love differently, who value differently, who have different ambitions, different goals, different relationships, that, 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 that we don't fit in. And that's not just for kids, right? That's for all of us. Listen, if your goal in life is to fit in, to be normal, to just be maybe a little bit of a nicer or more decent version of everybody else, then you have misunderstood hope. You are at risk of missing Christ. The church ought to be a place where we become beautifully strange together. In fact, I'm I'm reading uh, to my kids right now, um, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Anybody? Um, it's going to be a movie. Uh, it kind of has taken it to a whole new level of creepiness as, as we read. Um, so you can decide whether or not it's for you or for, or for your kids. Um, we've done a little editing along the way as I've read it aloud to them. Um, but these, these kids, like they, like, they redefine strange or peculiar, right? Um, there's no one like them. They are I mean, you can just tell, right? There's something a little bit different. And yet, as you read, as you get to know them, you actually kind of want to be one of them. Like you wish that you were peculiar like, like they are. And people, that, that ought to be us. You know, maybe in a, like a less creepy kind of way. Um, but the church ought to be a home for peculiar people, for people who don't, who don't fit in, who look differently, who choose to live and love and act and value differently than anyone, who live for something else, look for something else, long for something better, who, who don't accept normal as okay. Normal is killing us. And it's not because we think we're better than or we have it all figured out. Of course not. It's simply because we've encountered this, 
this God of grace who's taken old people, dead people, made us new, made us alive. Who now, who now instead of trying to just always fit in, look for ways to serve each other, putting, putting others' needs ahead of our own, even when it costs us something, even when it hurts us. Who pursue humility and grace, even with people we don't like. Who welcome those who aren't like us. Who loves who the world discards, passionate for all. I mean, what, what if that was us? Because it's not just strange for strange sake, right? Of course not. It's strange for the sake of others. It's hope for the hopeless. For this hope makes us love. That's the third thing. That's really what Paul's been getting at this whole time. Hope makes us love. I mean, look how Paul summarizes this beginning in in chapter 5. He says in response to these things, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, what I think he's getting at there is this newness. It's not really all that new. I mean, not really. This strangeness, it shouldn't be strange. For this is, this is the way of God. And you and I have been made in, in his image. It's, what's, it's what we were created for. It is in us to live like this. And so imitate God, he says. Uh, do what God does right? And, but not as, not as slaves, not as robots. How? As beloved children. And parents, you know how much your kids imitate you, right? It's what they do. It's how they learn. Paul says, well, that's, that should be us with God. What you see him do, just do that, right? And walk in love, Paul says, in the same kind of love that Christ has us, who gave himself up for us. I mean, the highest picture, the highest definition of love. For he is our motivation. He's our strength. He's our forgiveness when we fail, the reason for our hope, and the reason that we can be hope for our world. And so one more, one more question for us. As we wrap up this, this brief time in Ephesians, um, wrestling with the purpose of the local church. I mean, just think about it. What if we were this people? Again, I, I ask that with all humility, knowing that we have a long ways to go, knowing that this is, a, this is a process. We are being made new, right? What if we were people of hope? Collectively, like here together, but also individually, the body of Christ, everywhere that we go in every relationship we have, not just theoretically, Right? Not just in this grand sense in which we all know that it's a good idea, but actually, practically, you and me, what, what would that do for you? How would it change you? What would it do for your family or, or your workplace or your school? How, how would that affect our community? What would it look like for the marginalized and oppressed? What would it mean for our world? I mean, hope. The church is, by definition, a group of people who give themselves away for the sake of others. And I know churches tend to turn inward. I've seen the research. I've read the books. I've seen the stories. That's the tendency. The churches over time begin to exist only for themselves, only for the sake of those who are already in the safe little club, right? But I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't want to be that church. Like I, I want to be part of an institution that pursues hope for all people, even when it hurts even when it costs us, even when it's, when it's difficult. 
And so even, even as we've been you know, thinking about and talking about this idea of, of reach KC, right? And, and I realize there's probably lots of questions swirling around that, hopefully a lot of excitement, but it's like, I mean, do we really need to expand I mean, all that time, all that money? And I, I get it, man. I've lost sleep over this, believe me. But someone, someone new here summed it up so beautifully this past week. Um, unsolicited, just was sort of reflecting on, on what we're trying to do with Reach KC. And she's, she and her family, they've been attending for about a year, and she was recounting that her very first Sunday here at, at Christ Community, uh, we were doing an update on our, on our Shawnee Mission Campus, um, that we sent out uh, 130 people from here to go and, and plant a new congregation there in that, in that community. And as, as we were, were talking about that, we, we have always like, communicated. We, we do that really for two reasons, right? Because we believe that there will never be too many churches, that new churches is the best way to, lo- to, to win lost people. Um, and Shawnee Mission needs an outpost of hope. And we wanted to go and be a part of that. But also, like, the second reason, and, and this is what she really grabbed onto, is that people left the church they love to make room for her. So, so that she and her family could come in and, and, and find a seat and be welcomed in, that, that there would be room in our, our classrooms for our kids, that there would be ability to, to do that. Um, and this week, she was putting it together. That's, that's really what Reach KC is. It's a chance for us to make more room again, to new, see new people coming alive in Christ, embracing the beautifully peculiar, and learning together how to love. Baby steps all the way, but being changed. The church is a place where strange people welcome strangers because there's hope here and that hope changes everything. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would, um, God, do this work in me. God, would you forgive me for the ways in which I put so much hope in my own ability to carve out a good life or to keep myself safe or my family to protect them or, God, or just to do whatever I want. God, what a narrow view of hope. God, I pray that together you'd help me to see, help us to see as a church that real hope um, trusts you, knows you, knows that you love us better than we love ourselves, that you love our, our kids, our families, our communities, our jobs, that you love these things way more than we ever could and that you have not abandoned us and that you are bringing us to a glorious end. God, give us joy in that and help us to celebrate it. Help us to rejoice in it. And God, I pray, please, let us convey that hope to others. God, I pray that we would never lose the joy or the focus, the passion of seeing those who don't know you, those who have been outside of your community, your people, welcomed in and loved. Give us the grace to do it, we pray. Amen. Before coming to Christ, I I was absent uh, of of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs and and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley. I I, I carried my my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And... Uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had. Uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. 
God led me to a, a gondola uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy who I don't want to call a guy, I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life and I was 26 years old and I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping, yapping, and then the words caught me, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience, but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a, on a search for it. I went on these other journeys, and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery that I left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships and, and people that uh, our lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There, there was no answer. There's no answer for redemption or restoration there was nothing there and I was hollow I was hollow inside and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people and I hurt them really bad and why I did it there was no hope for me and so I found my dad's gun key and I unlocked it and when I loaded the gun up and I plotted it out in my head and I was standing there looking in a mirror this is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps come through the house of my mom's house. And my mom had ran some daycare, so she, she had a lot of little kids that would run around. And I'm a big kid myself and I refused to grow up. So the kids love me. Uh, and uh, she come running through that house and she stopped dead in her tracks and she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me and she looked me dead in the face and she said, Jeff, do you want a color? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I want a color. That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration and healing and redemption and forgiveness and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little seven-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And, and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and, and burdened, heavy laden, and, and I'm going to give you rest, Jeff, and I'm going to forgive you. This hope is for me, this hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of uh, hope in a Savior. It's for me, and thank goodness, thank goodness. But it's also about us, and the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers, all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope, and then we uh, as a people together can be that hope for the world, 
because the church is the hope of the world. And Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it with a family.